So the Lord's Prayer, we've, uh, we've kind of arrived there um, over the past few months, actually. Um, this is part of our series on um, the teachings of Jesus. And so we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, verse by verse. We started back in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. We worked our way all the way through Matthew chapter 5, and we're now in Matthew chapter 6. And for the past couple of weeks, Pastor Michael's been talking about prayer, and he's been talking more... In, in, in the, in, starting in Matthew 5, verses 4, Jesus talks, starts talking about prayer. And he talks about prayer, he starts talking about how you should pray. And he says, don't be like these people who use big words, who pray in public to be seen. And so Jesus gives the, all this teaching about how you shouldn't pray, or how you should pray. And it's a little bit about technique. And we're following Jesus and listening to his words on prayer because we actually believe that to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian, to be with Christ, to be like Christ, is to do what Jesus says. And so we think it's very important to take a look at what Jesus says, and what his teachings are, so that we can actually do those things. And so when it comes to something like prayer, who better to learn from about prayer than from Jesus? And so Pastor Michael's been taking us through this for the past couple of weeks, and we've been asking different questions about it. And... Uh, well, the feedback we've been getting is that this has been so far, this talk about prayer for the past two weeks has been really helpful to people because prayer apparently is an area of real struggle for many people. I know it is in my life. I know Pastor Michael's talked about being an area of struggle in his life as well. Prayer is often hard. We took a survey last week on the connection card, and if you don't have a connection card yet this morning, you'll want it um, before the end of the service. So if you don't have one and you want it, just raise your hand and an usher will come and bring you one because we're going to be doing some more responses and filling out some questions there. But last week we took a response question, we asked for um, responses to a whole bunch of different questions, and we asked you to say whether or not you, based on your response to those questions, you felt that your prayer life was satisfactory, somewhat satisfactory, or not satisfactory at all. And we got a whole bunch of responses, almost about 70 responses, which is great, and out of that, 52% of you said that you were somewhat satisfied with your prayer life. 52%. So about half. Half of the people in the room are somewhat satisfied. But you felt that there was room for improvement in your prayer life. 45% said you were not satisfied with your prayer life. Not satisfied with your prayer life. So that's almost half of you too. That left 3% of you who said you were satisfied with your prayer life. 3%. And one of the people who said that they were satisfied with their prayer life said, actually, now that I've heard this sermon, I am satisfied, but I think there's always room for improvement. So basically, what we're saying is virtually everybody in the room, when you think about your prayer life, you go, well, it could be better. That's what I think of when I think of my prayer life. Well, it could be better. And there's all, there was all sorts of reasons listed on the connection card why it could be better. Some people talked about that they struggled with prayer because they weren't sure what to say. What were the right words? How do, how do we talk in prayer? Some people said that they got distracted very easily and they couldn't focus during prayer. They, or they got discouraged because they didn't seem to get the response they wanted. Or it didn't seem like anybody was listening. Or they felt very lonely when they prayed. There was a sense, and, and other people said that there was a sense that they didn't do enough. That they didn't pray enough. That they didn't pray right. So they just this dissatisfaction with the way that their prayer life was. And I would agree with all those things, that there are times when I pray when it's just like, I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know if I'm being heard. I feel very alone. It doesn't feel like it's doing anything. 
But the point is, is that basically everyone in this room, for whatever reason, has a sense of dissatisfaction about their prayer life, that it could be better. And thankfully, we're not alone in this feeling. We're not alone in this feeling at all. You see, um, in the Gospels, there's two versions of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer that's given in Matthew um, chapter 6, which we're looking at today, and then also in Luke chapter 11. And in Matthew chapter 6, it's presented as Jesus is part of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, part of this, this consecutive speech he's giving. But in, in Luke chapter 11, it's actually presented that Jesus was praying, and then his disciples came up to him, and they saw the way he was praying, and when he finished praying, they said, wow, can you teach us to pray like that? They said, teach us to pray. The disciples looked at Jesus and they said, we, we, we don't know how to pray like you pray. We're dissatisfied with our prayer life, so teach us to pray. And so this morning, we align ourselves with the disciples and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And so when the disciples said this to Jesus, they actually, Jesus' response was not to begin to talk about theories and principles about prayer. He didn't talk about ideas for prayer. He didn't say, like, well, you know, prayer is really this. He said, no. He, he said, okay, well, if you want to know how to pray, here's a prayer. And pray this prayer. Pray it like this. You see, and that was very common in Jesus' day. Jewish rabbis, they wouldn't usually talk about theories and things like that, especially when it came to prayer or principles. They would just talk about, they would just give their disciples a prayer, and then their disciples would pray the prayer, and in the practice of praying the prayer, the disciples would begin to understand what prayer was actually about. They didn't first understand what prayer was about in order to pray. They started to pray, and in praying properly, they learned what prayer was actually about. And so Jesus' response is not to say, well, you know, okay, well, let me, let, let me, let me t- tell you how we're going to talk to God or what your prayer life needs to be like or, or what it really means to truly pray. No, he just says, okay, if you want to learn how to pray, here's a prayer. Pray this prayer, and it will teach you to pray. It's the prayer that he gave his disciples both then and now to integrate our lives and to teach us the proper pattern and posture of prayer. J.I. Packer puts it this way. He said, The Lord's Prayer is a pattern for all Christian praying. That is to say, every prayer of ours should be a praying of the Lord's Prayer in some shape or form. We never get beyond this prayer, and not only is it the Lord's first lesson in praying, it is all the other lessons in praying too. Augustine put it this way. He said, Whatever else we say when we pray, if we pray as we should, we are only saying what is already contained in the Lord's Prayer. Whatever we pray, it's already contained in the Lord's Prayer. Because the Lord's Prayer is, is a, brilliant, a brilliant thing. But I want to be clear this morning, before we get too far into this, that the Lord's Prayer is not some sort of magical incantation that if you say it, God's going to do what you want. Or that you're going to get the results that you, that, that you expect. That's not what it is. Because that's actually not the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is not to get God, what, not to, get God to do what we want. Brian Zahn puts it this way. He says, The primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what you want him to do, but to be properly formed according to the will of God. In praying, it's not that we change God. It's that prayer changes us. So Jesus was teaching his disciples not a formula to to get what they wanted from God, but to change themselves. A pattern of prayer that when implemented in their daily lives would begin to shift the way they thought about and the way they followed God 
If we pray properly, it not just changes the way we think, and not just changes what we say, it changes how we live. And it clears away a lot of the false assumptions and misconceptions we have about God if we pray properly. But in, in order to pray properly, we need to have those misconceptions set aside. That's why Jesus gives us a prayer. He says, I know that you have some confusion about what God is like and about how you relate to God. So I'm going to give you a prayer, and in praying it, it will actually clear up those misconceptions that you have. So this morning, we're going to begin to look at how the Lord's Prayer clears away some of those misconceptions we have about God and that prevent, those misconceptions that prevent us from praying and living as Jesus intends us to live. And we're not even going to get very far this morning. If you're hoping that we're going to whip through this series, today is not the day that happens. We're going to make it four words further into Matthew chapter 6 than we were at the end of last week. We're just going to make it through our Father in heaven. Now, we're going to structure this morning a little bit differently. You've probably noticed that already. We didn't do a second set of worship. We're going to, I'm going to speak for a few minutes, then we're going to, do a, we're going to um, practice responding. And then, through prayer and worship, then we're going to do a little bit more teaching, a little bit more prayer and worship, and then a little bit more teaching and a little bit more prayer and worship. So it's going to kind of have this little rhythm, because what we want to do is I don't just want to talk about prayer, because that's what Jesus didn't do. He didn't just talk about it. He said, if you want to pray properly, you pray, practice praying. And so we're going to practice praying and responding this morning. So... I want us to think about these four words, our Father in heaven, as the address that you would put on an envelope if you were going to send a letter. Our Father in heaven. These four words set the tone for the entire prayer that is to follow. And I think actually these four words, without these four words, whatever else follows in the prayer, if it didn't have these four words in front of it, would lack the power and clarity that's necessary. And I think that if we start any prayer we have out of the concepts of these four words, that then our, the prayer that follows will be headed in the right direction. Now, I, what I don't want to say this morning is I want to say, oh, like, you need, to, you need to pray this, because if you don't get the address right, then God's not going to hear your prayer. The Bible very clearly says that God even hears our inward groans and sighs and receives those as prayer. So it's not that we have to, if we don't get the address right, God's going to miss it. But we need to remember this morning that prayer is not about getting God to do what we want. It's about aligning our hearts properly and being properly formed. And so if we have a misconception about who is praying— if we have a misconception about who we're praying to, and if we have a misconception about where that prayer is going, then it changes everything we're going to say. If I write this, if I wrote a letter right now, I filled out this address, and I was going to send a letter to the Prime Minister of Canada, I would write that on behalf of everyone in this room, I would write that letter very differently than if I was sending a text message to Nelson about a movie I watched. You know, I, I would be much more formal and much more serious in the way I sent a letter to the Prime Minister than in the way I sent a note to Nelson. Nelson, your eyes. <laughs> uh, but, so, 
there are really three parts to the address, and we start right now with who the letter is from. Who is this letter from? When we pray, who is, who is praying? And Jesus gives us one word. He says, are. Who is praying? Who is this letter from? This letter is from R. Now, I want you to take your connection card, and on it, there's a very first question. When I pray to God, I usually feel um, closer to one. If you circle one, that means you feel alone when you pray. Number five means you sense that you are in community. You feel strongly in community when you pray. And you can circle anywhere in along those lines. But Jesus, when he says, how do you pray? He says, we pray, are. And that word is so important because just to say are is odd. We should say us, like right now, but we'll say are for a minute. Um, It's in the plural. We pray in the plural. We don't pray me prayers. We pray us prayers. Jesus does not say that you pray to my Father in heaven. He says you pray to our Father in heaven. And that changes things dramatically because the easiest thing in the world for me is for my prayers to become about me. And they become a recitation of my anxieties and my stresses and my wants and my needs. And dear God, this is happening in my life. And dear God, um, I want, I need this. And dear God, can you do this for me? And dear God, and it's all about me and what I want and how I'm feeling. But Jesus says, you don't pray from the place of me. You pray from the place of we, from the us, from the are. And in doing so, it gives you proper perspective on how to pray. Because it's very hard to pray selfish, me-oriented prayers when I'm using the word us and are and we. If I write a letter... Personally, I'm going to write it one way. But if I send a letter or write something on behalf of Parkway Church, I'm going to write it another way. I'm going to take into account what everybody thinks and what everybody feels, and I want to represent all of us. And so I bring in more perspectives, and I take a wider view. And so by praying our Father, it allows us to not pray so self-centeredly. It's very hard to ask God to pray to God to make you rich when you're praying on also praying on behalf of the homeless and the refugees and other people in the third world. It's very hard to pray to God about things that are vain, like whether your hair is going gray or not. Dear God, don't let it go gray yet. When you are praying alongside the terminally ill, the disabled. It's very difficult to do that. It's very difficult to pray that God would strike down and get vengeance on the people who have hurt you or the people who might put your security at risk if you are actually praying for and with those people. Because the 
our, the us, the we, is not defined here. Jesus has not put a definition on who he means by our. It's a universal our. So that means that we are praying alongside of every single person who has been created and gifted with the image of God. We pray alongside everyone. And so, in order to do that, we need to think about us and we. And what that also does is that then it changes how we feel when we pray. Instead of feeling alone when we pray, we begin to realize that we are praying with hundreds of thousands and millions of other people who are also praying at any given time. We are praying alongside the saints throughout history who the Bible says are at the throne of God praying and praising our Heavenly Father. And it also means that we are praying, when we pray, we pray with Jesus. Romans 8 says that Jesus right now is interceding on our behalf. He's with God interceding on our behalf. So he is praying not, right now Jesus is praying with us and for us. So when we begin to pray, prayer doesn't just start when we begin to pray and end when we say amen. We actually begin, prayer is something that is ongoing that we enter into. And then when we say amen, we leave the conversation that continues to go on. And then we rejoin it again. Prayer is like a river that is flowing. And we, when we begin to pray, we jump into the river and we're carried along with it for a period of time. And then when we end our prayer, we get out, but the river keeps going. Prayer does not stop. We participate in prayer. Prayer is ongoing. So we are not alone when we pray. We are connected to everyone when we pray. So we keep in mind that we are praying for everyone and with everyone and that other people are praying alongside of us. So prayer is not lonely. Prayer is communal. This changes things. Prayer unites us across racial and national lines, social lines, political lines. Prayer brings us all together. We are all equal in prayer. And so we all come to God and say, Our. We're united in that. It is a symphony of voices that stretch across time and space. I'm going to invite the team to come up. Because, and we're going to do a song in a moment. Because I think one of the things that helps us to picture this is when we sing on Sunday mornings. Singing on Sunday mornings is actually a discipline. A spiritual discipline that teaches us something. It teaches us that we are actually in this together. This is an our thing. It's not a me thing. We come and we put all of our voices together and we sing in harmony with one another the same words all together. And it's a picture of what happens when we pray. In particular, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are joining with people all across the world and praying the exact, and saying the exact same words to God together in harmony. So what I'm going to invite you to do is I want to invite you to stand. And we're going to sing. And so I invite you to sing every word of this song together. It's a version and an adaptation of the Lord's Prayer. And so we're going to sing this together as the Lord's Prayer was meant to be sung. As a we, as our, as us. And I don't want this to get too cheesy, but to really give that sense of community, I'd like you to maybe grab the hand of the people next to you 
And so we're really, and if nobody's really next to you, that's okay, but maybe you can move and stand next to somebody so nobody's alone. If you really don't want to hold hands, I'm not going to make you, but it's a good idea. And I want us to be united together in singing this song of praise. That this is us together, that we are joining a symphony of voices crying out to our Heavenly Father. Let's sing together. Help us, unite us as a we. That we could pray our Father. That we would not feel alone in our prayers. And that we would not be exclusive in our prayers, God. But that our prayers would come out of a place of praying on behalf of and alongside of all of our brothers and sisters around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we know who the letter is from. Now we need to know who the letter is for. And so I want you to pull out your connection card. And the second question on your connection card is this. When I pray, the primary image of God in my head is blank. And I want you to fill that in. Whatever it is that when you pray, this is what I think I'm praying to. What, what is that dominating image? Maybe sometimes it takes a little bit of thinking to, to realign yourself around what that is. What does it mean? Who am I praying to? When I go, when I go to a place of prayer, who do I think I'm addressing? Because who I'm writing a letter to makes a tremendous amount of difference. If I'm writing, there's a difference between if I'm writing to the prime minister or if I'm writing to my wife. If I'm writing to my lawyer or if I'm writing to my grandparents. I'm going to write very differently. Who we believe we are talking to has an incredible impact on what it is that we're going to say and how we intend to say it. And that's why it's very important that Jesus says that when we pray, we are to address God as Father. And so, we address God as Father. Now, there are literally hundreds of names in the Bible that refer to God. Hundreds of names. Um, Jesus could have asked us to pray like the prophet Isaiah, who often referred to God as a judge and a lawmaker. He could have asked us to pray that way. He could have asked us to pray to Elohim, which is a Hebrew word for mighty and powerful. That seems like a good person to pray to. We could pray to the mighty and powerful God. We could even pray alongside David, who prayed to the Lord is my shepherd. He referred to God as his shepherd. And that's a, that's a nice image to pray to. Oh, I could pray to God as my shepherd. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't pick any of those words. He says, Father is the word. Because each of those words, those other words, brings to mind different images of God. But Jesus says, the image that I want you to think of when you pray is of Father. Greg Boyd says that your mental picture of God is the most important thing in your life because the loveliness of your life will never go further than your understanding of the love of God. I'll read that again. The mental picture, your mental picture of God is the most important thing in your life because the loveliness of your life will never go further than your understanding of the love of God. The image of God that we address our prayers to directly influences what we say, how we're going to say it, and it influences our ability to pray well. And I would argue it influences our ability to follow Jesus well, to live well. 
So, Father. So we don't approach God. Jesus mis- he's clearing out these misconceptions. He's saying, okay, we're not praying to God who's the angry judge in the sky. We don't pray to God who's like the other gods of the time who is distant and angry and often violent. We aren't praying to that God. We aren't praying to... We're not even praying to some mystical force, some spiritual faceless being, to the divine. I think using the word the divine can be very helpful for people sometimes. But when it comes to our prayers, Jesus wants us to think of God as Father. Now, even the image of Father can be very difficult for people sometimes because they've had bad experiences with their own father. Maybe they've been abandoned and they never knew their father. Maybe they've been abused by their father. Maybe they've always felt that they've had to earn their father's affection or his attention. And maybe they've always felt a little bit distant or that the relationship is strained for some reason. And so when they think of father, God as father, they bring in all that baggage that they have from their human father. And that's very natural, very easy. It actually works the opposite way, too. Um, some, some studies and, and some, I've done some reading on this, and they, and they talk about how it actually is, inhibits people from praying if they have a really great relationship with their father because then what that does is that their automatic response in the time of need or time of loneliness is actually to turn to their human father because that's where they've always felt that need met. You know, and their human father does a great job of that, but he only meets it temporarily. And, but it actually keeps them from there being their first response to crisis being prayer and said their first response to crisis is to, like, call their dad. But, so we have this baggage about father sometimes. And we can naturally apply it to God, which can be just as harmful to our prayer life as if we saw God as an angry judge. I mean, if God is an abusive father, if that's what we think of when we think of father— then if he's an angry judge, it's just as bad. It's just as bad. But the Bible argues that God is not like our human fathers, and we have to separate this image of God as Father from our human fathers and allow God to be the perfect Father. In Matthew 7, verse 11, it says, You, parents, if your child asks for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people, he's so kind, if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? If we know how to be, in our, in our brokenness, if we can be good parents even some of the time, how much more so can God be trusted to be a good parent all the time? But sometimes it's not just enough to know facts about whether somebody's a good person or not. We need, to, we need to see how they're a good person in action. And so there's a powerful story. And probably the most powerful image of God, and fa- as God our Father is found in the book of Luke, chapter 15. And it's a story you're probably familiar with. It's the story of the prodigal son. Or actually, as Tim Keller says, the story of the prodigal father. Because the father is actually the main character in the story. It's not, not the prodigal son. It's the father. And so, if you're not familiar with the story, it basically goes like this. There's a father who has two sons. The younger son 
comes to his father as he grows up, and he's tired of living around the house. He's tired of, of being there. He wants to go explore the world and experience the world. So he says to his father, I would like to have my inheritance now, please. This is a big ask because in those days, it wasn't like most of the wealth of the family was, t- was, like in, um, was liquidated. Like, you know, it wasn't like they had a bunch of cash sitting around. They owned land. They owned cattle. They owned property. They didn't have, like, you know, just like Scrooge McDuck money sitting in a safe in the back, right? It wasn't like, oh, yeah, let me just get that for you. No. And so in order for him to get his inheritance, the father would have to go and he would have to sell off a portion of his land and he would have to sell off a portion of his cattle and that would reduce his standing in the community. It would actually be very shaming to have to go and sell off your family property before you died. In fact, for the son to ask the father for his inheritance was basically for the son to say, I wish you were dead. But the father says, okay, I'll give you your inheritance. Sells what he needs to sell, gives it to the son, and the son does exactly what you would expect he would do with it. He goes out. He has a good time. He meets some people, goes to some parties, meets some ladies, has some experiences. It's a good time until the money runs out. He's obviously not real good with the finances. He's too focused on enjoying life. YOLO, right? Like, it's just like, do it now. And so, the, the son does this, and he spends all the money, and he comes to a place where he has no more money left, he's starving, and so he offers himself to a pig farmer to take care of the pigs. And while he's there, he's so hungry that he starts eating the slop that is fed to the pigs. That's how bad it gets for the son. And he finally says, you know what? This is ridiculous. I will go back to my father's house, And if I beg hard enough, perhaps he will take me back as a servant, a paid servant in his house. That's really my only shot. So he goes home, and he's trudging back. And the text says something amazing here. The text says that so he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, the father ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Now I want you to think about this picture of this, this scene. So it's most likely that the father, the family lived in a, in a, a small village. There would be a cluster of, of homes. And there would be a road leading into the village. And the son is walking up this road. And I notice that this text says that, well, he was still a long way off. That means that the father wasn't just like... He didn't just arrive at the father's door and was like, hey, dad, I'm home. The father was actually actively looking out in the distance. And you imagine, you can picture the father having done this for a long time, hoping for this moment that his son would be coming up through the distance. And he's waiting. And he sees his son. And what does he do? It says he runs to him. This is very important because as a Jewish male of that time, his clothing was such that it would be very difficult to run. You wore these sort of long tunics. Um, and so running, if you ran in those, you would trip. And so in order to run, what you had to do is you had to grab the bottoms and you had to roll it up and you had to hold it around your waist while you ran. Which, in that culture, is incredibly embarrassing. 
for a upstanding member of the community to be showing his bare legs to the entire village as he runs to greet his son. And so the father is willing to embarrass himself to get to his son as quickly as possible. But why is it important that he gets to his son as quickly as possible? Because in those days, as I mentioned earlier, the son had brought great shame on the family. They'd had to sell everything, or most of it, to, to pay off the inheritance. And so the family, the village, would also have taken offense to what the son had done. He was now a black sheep. He was an outcast. And so the village would, their tradition would be, uh, if somebody had done something like this, where they had embarrassed the village and then chose to, come to, chose to come back, the village would shame them before allowing them back in the community. And so the son was going to return to the village, and they would yell at him, shaming things at him, and they would actually throw things at him. This is what the son is coming back to, to a village full of angry people who are going to yell mean tweets at him and throw stuff at him. And so the father runs because he wants to get to his son before the son gets to the village. Because he wants to protect his son from the shaming that is going to happen when he arrives at the village. And so he does that. He gets there, he welcomes his son, and protects him from the shaming that's going to happen. The son who embarrassed him in front of everyone. The son who told him, I wish you were dead. That's the son that the father runs, embarrasses himself for, and protects from the shame of everybody else. And judgment of the people around him. That's the kind of father that God is. That's the kind of father. That picture of running towards us, of loving us, protecting us, who when we come back, no matter what we do and what happens, who loves us, invites us in and throws a party that we are there with him, who just loves to have his kids in his home with them. That's the kind of father. And so I'm going to invite Nate to come up. And I want us to take a second. And I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to picture that moment. I want, to picture your, I want you to picture yourself in the place of that son. Walking up the dirt road towards the village. Expecting that you are going to be hurt and shamed and judged. Expecting that God is after you. And yet, instead, while you're still a long way off, you see this figure running towards you. You see your father running towards you. And he's not angry, but his arms are open, or as open as they can be when they're holding up a robe to run towards you. And he reaches you and he hugs you and he kisses you and he says, welcome home. That's the kind of father we pray to. We don't pray to the angry God who's there to judge us, the, the one who is so upset when we make mistakes. We pray to the father who run, who's looking for us when we are a long way off and who runs towards us and brings us in. And just picture that moment. I want you to picture for a second... First, I want you to picture that being your father at the end of the road. And imagine that experience of what he would say to you after you told him you wished he was dead. 
and wasted his money. And I want you to shift that image just a little bit. And I want you to imagine it's Jesus running towards you. And instead of joining the shaming words of the community, he's saying, I love you. I've missed you. Welcome home. Let's celebrate. I invite you to stay seated for a moment as Nate leads us in this song. confidence knowing that your heart for us is good and that you love us that your posture towards us is one of grace and mercy and that you long for us to be in your presence and you long for intimacy and closeness with us you long for us to be family jesus name amen So our last, last part of our address, and so before I get to that, just take your connection card. And question number three, when I pray to God in heaven, I picture God as close or distant. Where on that spectrum do you fall? Do you picture God as close or distant? Because Jesus says that we should direct our prayers to heaven. Now, getting the address on a letter is very correct is very important. If you get it wrong, then it's not going to go where you want it to go. Or it creates a lot of confusion. I remember when I worked at Holiday Inn, I worked at front, the reception desk at a Holiday Inn in Sudbury for a while. And I remember getting a call from a guest who was trying to find our hotel so he could check in. He had a reservation and everything. I looked in the computer, he had a reservation. And he was like, I'm driving around and I can't find I can't find it and it's not showing up on my map and my GPS and I said okay well listen you know where are you he said tell, you know tell me what street you're on and I'll, I'll I'll try and direct you and so he's describing where he is and I I can't picture it and I'm just like I I don't know and he's the conversation goes on for five or six minutes he's like I'm just turning on this street and I'm like okay we'll just stop for a second and look around and we'll figure out where you are and he's like I came in on this highway and I'm like what highway like just was super confusing and the conversation went on for ten minutes and I said I said I said do you know where you are He's like, yeah. He's like, I'm in Sudbury. And I'm like, which Sudbury? I'm like, Sudbury, Ontario? No. Sudbury, Massachusetts. <laughs> I'm like, well, your reservation's at the Holiday Inn in Sudbury, Ontario. So you have a small problem. <laughs> so the address matters. And Jesus says, in heaven. And our culture has ingrained in us these images of heaven that often involve clouds and harps and angels, or at least streets of gold, or, or these sort of idyllic things. But heaven in our cultural mindset, in our minds, often is something that is far away. We are going to go to heaven, and we'll get to heaven after we die, or some point in the future. So if heaven is not only geographically far, it's somewhere we can't get geographically, And it's somewhere that we won't get to until much later. It feels very distant. But that's where Jesus teaches praise. He says, to our Father in heaven. And so it's very easy for us to feel that that is very far off. That God is way up there listening to our prayers. But sometimes language matters. The difference between Sudbury, Massachusetts and Sudbury, Ontario 
There's not much of a difference in terms of the wording, but there's a huge difference in terms of the geography. And so if I asked you right now what it is that you are breathing in and what you are surrounded by, you would tell me it's air. If we went outside and I pointed up at the clouds and I said, what's that? You would say it's the sky. And if I asked you, okay, well, if I go up through the sky and keep going, where do I end up? And you'd say, well, you end up in space. We have three different words for what is essentially the same thing, air, sky, and space. But in Jesus' day, in the Jewish culture, they did not have separate words for the air around you, the air up in the sky, and then the air beyond that. They had one word. Heaven. Or the heavens, as they would say. The heavens was not only the air way out there, but it was actually the air right here. The heavens was the atmosphere. The heavens, then, were all around us. So when Jesus says to pray to your Father in heaven, he's not saying, pray to the God who's way out there. He's saying, pray to your Heavenly Father who's right there, all around you. That you are breathing in. That is actually the force that is sustaining you. The best translation for this is actually not our Father in heaven, but if we translated it properly in terms of what Jesus was intending, the best translation here is our Father always near us. That there is nowhere you can go to get away from God. He is always around you. In Acts 17, it says this, God made the entire human race so we could seek after him and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. He doesn't play hide-and-seek with us. He's not remote. He's near. We live and move in him and can't get away from him. If we begin begin to understand that we live and move and we are surrounded by God, our Father, then that changes the way we talk to him because we are not just shouting words out into the void, into the universe, hoping for a response. Prayer becomes an intimate conversation with the person who is right next to us. The question is not, is God present to hear us? But are we aware that God, of God's presence around us? And I think sometimes in our world, in our lives, we get so busy that we miss out on the fact that our Father is always near us. We do not take the time to stop and to soak in the fact that his presence is right here. We do not, are not aware of the closeness of God. And so we pray to heaven, and it seems distance when he is really right here. And I think that's why we need to practice slowing down, shutting things off, turning off our phones and our screens, and just sitting and resting in his presence and opening ourselves up to an awareness, whether it's maybe being outside and looking at nature and finding it there. Maybe it's sitting quietly in a space and just breathing in and being aware of that breath that we are drawing and allowing that to say, yes, God, you're here. I sense you. 
That's why these four words are so important. Our Father in heaven, because everything we pray then is oriented around these things. We pray out of community. We pray to a loving Father who is always near us. We don't pray alone. We don't pray for ourselves to an angry God who's far away and distant. We pray to our Father in heaven. And everything we say after that is affected by those four words, our Father in heaven. If we can center our prayers and our lives on that reality, it changes everything. But we need to be intentional about that. And so I'm going to invite the team to come. And as they come, I want to do a little exercise with you as we close. Colin's going to put the lights down for a second. And I'm going to recite a prayer over you that is simply a prayer from the scriptures called, that says, Be still and know that I am God. And I want you to close your eyes and simply rest. And I'm going to pray it over you, and then we're going to sit in silence for a second, and then Nate and the team are going to lead us. In a closing song that aware, makes us aware of God's presence. But I want us to just sit and rest. So close your eyes. Breathe deeply. And allow me to pray this over you. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still. Be. Just be. invite you to pray the, Lord, pray the Lord's Prayer with me together as we close this morning. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, now and forever. Amen. You may be seated, and Ian's going to come and close the service with a few